You are about to take part in a session from a Discipleship Bible School held at YWAM Richmond in the spring of 2022, and we are so grateful you are here. So much prayer went into every element of this course, from recruitment to content editing, and we are convinced you will leave this knowing God a little deeper. The Discipleship Bible School, or DBS, is an opportunity to survey the entirety of Scripture to discover God's redemptive plan for all of humanity. Over the course of 12 weeks, teachers explored the Bible section by section, not only to deepen students' understanding of what was written then, but reveal what we are being invited into now. If you like what you are hearing, visit ywamva.org to discover what courses we are offering, ways you can journey with our team, and other content created to help you know God and make Him known. Everything you hear was created as a step of faith by a team of YWAMers and volunteers who felt God inviting them to capture the DBS in its entirety, over 120 hours of content. If this content blesses you, consider supporting future schools and content by giving at ywamrichmond.org donate. Thank you so much for listening, and we can't wait for you to experience God today. Matthew 21, 45. When the chief priest and the Pharisees heard Jesus' parables, they knew he was talking about them. Um, in chapter 21, he told the parable about the, uh, the, the farmer and the tenants and the, and the problems they were having. And so they're aware that Jesus is poking them through the parables. And so in 2146, they looked for a way to arrest him, but they were afraid of the crowd because the people held that he was a prophet. And so his parable teaching jeopardized his freedom. It, 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 was, it was partly due to the parables that he was teaching that the Pharisees understood that he was poking fun at them or judging them in a parabolic way, and they looked for a way to arrest him. They had asked him earlier, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? Uh, he cursed a fig tree. He caused it to wither. He, clean, he cleansed the temple uh, of the buying and selling in, in the prayer area. He raised Lazarus from the tomb. And they're asking him, who gave you authority to do these things? And he offers parables of judgment against the Pharisees in chapter 21. The owner of the vineyard with the two sons. One son would work, the other would not the parable of the owner of the vineyard who rented out the vineyard, and the, the comment that Jesus makes, have you never read in the scriptures that the stone that the builders rejected has become the capstone? The Lord has done this. It is marvelous in our eyes. In verse 43, he said, therefore I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. He who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but he on whom it falls will be crushed. So either you're on the stone or under the stone. Either way, it's going to hurt. In Matthew 22, verse 1, Jesus spoke to them again in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. Now, a lot of people in the crowd would go, Oh, oh I know this one, because it was a common one. It was told a lot of different ways, but it would usually begin with, There was a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. And here he uses the term of kingdom of heaven. 
uh, kingdom of heaven with God wanting to be king of your life today. God wants to be your king. And here's a glimpse. So Jesus is giving a glimpse of what it's like if you're letting God in heaven be your king. Here's the king. Okay, so in the story, in the parable, the king sent his servants, in verse 3, to those who had been invited to the banquet to tell them to come, but they refused to come. So there's a wedding banquet, and invitation goes out. So the first invitation, the king is going to marry off the prince. Invite the guest, give them time for people to prepare the food. Give time to prepare the banquets. These guests refuse the invitation from their sovereign king. Verse 4, then he sent more servants and said, Tell those who have been invited that I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and fattened calf have been butchered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. They have no refrigerators. They have no freezers. When they butcher their food, they have to serve it. Or it's going to go bad quick. Second invitation goes out. The dinner is on. All is ready to eat. No refrigeration. Eat now or it goes bad. But these people are preoccupied with their possessions, with their enjoyments, with their aims and their desires and their careers. Verse 5, they paid no attention. They went off, one to his field, another to his business. So some resorted to, to murder and open rebellion. In verse 6, the rest of them seized his servants, mistreated them, and killed them. That's insurrection against the king. Violent acts against the king is insurrection against the king. This is not just some local yokel whose sons get married. This is the king. And so some of the people invited to the wedding have seized the servants, mistreated them, and killed some of them. Well, the king is enraged in verse 7. He sent his army and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Okay, so the king puts down the insurrection by having his army destroy the guilty people and their city. So the king is balancing an insurrection with a wedding banquet. He's, he's trying to hold a wedding banquet, and he's dealing with an insurrection at the same time. So he sends out a third invitation. Okay, He said to his servants, the wedding banquet's ready. But those I invited did not deserve to come. They showed they don't deserve to be here. So go to the street corners and invite to the banquet anyone you find. So the meal is prepared. Everything's ready to eat. No refrigeration. Eat it now or it all goes bad. The people on the preferred list, the A list, and the B list, both showed they were undeserving because they dishonored the king. So invite anyone you can find. Go to the street corners, invite them, good or bad, without regard to any previous condition or lifestyle or relationship with the king, loyal or not, religious or not, okay? So the servants went into the street, gathered all the people they could find, good and bad, wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to see the guest, he noticed a man there who was not wearing wedding clothes. Now this is the first mention of wedding clothes because Matthew, as he's writing this, and Jesus, as he's telling this, Everybody, everybody listening to Jesus would have known the story and would have known the custom. Friend, he asked, how did you get in here without wedding clothes? And the man is speechless. Okay, the guy had no explanation for his lack of proper attire. It's a, it, th this is a serious case of fashion police. He's been caught by the fashion police, and, and, and here's the problem. According to Jewish tradition, 
as it's recorded in the Talmud, which is one of the ancient Jewish writings regarding the law. It's not scripture, but it's commentary about scripture. Within it is that tradition that the father of the groom would have supplied the wedding robes. The bride and the groom would wear colorful attire of their own choosing or what their families gave to them. Uh, very often the, uh, the father and mother of the bride would have been preparing a wedding gown for her for a long time. In Jewish culture, usually the man had more colorful, the groom wore a more colorful coat than the bride did. That was common. Uh, kind of like peacocks. Have, have you seen male peacocks, the birds? They're, they're the ones with the, the fan. It's just awesome colors. And, and in Jewish culture, yes, the bride would look beautiful and would wear a distinctive dress. The man would wear a coat of many colors that would outshine anybody else. Now, but everybody else would wear the same color and style in order to not show up the couple. In this way, the poor guest did not need to be ashamed of their rags, and the, re the rich guest had no right to be proud of their fine threads. All the guests came on equal footing and in appearance. No room for any embarrassment or pride at the wedding. And the tradition was when you respond to the invitation, and in, in, we call it RSVP, which is from the French, right? Uh, responsa s'il vous plaît, is that it? Right, that's, yeah, that's it. Responsa s'il vous plaît. Um, so please respond. And they would respond by uh, yes with a name and um, spouse and number of children. And here are the sizes. Here's my size. Here's my spouse's size. Here's my children's sizes. Or anybody, and, and, and if, if my mother's invited, here's my mother and here's her size. So that the, the father of the groom, at least in a wealthy family, this would happen. The father of the groom would then hire a seamstress or a team of seamstresses to put together um, just lightweight frocks an over jacket, a, 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 just a, a simple but clean garment that people would wear over top of their clothes. That's, that's the tradition. So you need to know the sizes, the basic size, okay? These were not form-fitting things, just the basic size. Apparently, the man not wearing wedding clothes was on the A-list. He was on the first list of invitations. He did not send back an RSVP. He didn't say he was coming. Uh, he didn't give his size. And so no garment was prepared for him. Very easy to pick out of the crowd. And he was. He stuck out. Uh, this guy may have thought that his own clothes were good enough. And of course, he stuck out like a sore thumb. And then the punishment comes. Um, the king says, friend, in verse 12, how did you get in here without wearing wedding clothes? And the man was speechless. Verse 13, then the king told the attendants, and this is cold, I got to tell you, tie him hand and foot, throw him outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Well, the king is indignant. You were invited. You had your opportunity. There was an insurrection. I Invited guests rose up and killed some of my servants. I don't know if you did it or not, but there was an insurrection that I had to suppress and invite these people. And, and they responded right away. I mean, the food was ready. They got the invitation. They immediately accepted the invitation. 
and told us what size they needed, and we rushed and got the clothes ready. Those are the details, the reference points that aren't in the parable that Jesus tells because at the time, in first century Hebrew culture, everybody knew that part. Because just like us, if, it's just, you know, if, if you're out in public at a park and, and, and you see a guy and a girl and the guy gets down on his knees and you're 100 yards away, can you tell what the guy's doing? We all know that. It's just, it's, it's, it, 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 people of a culture recognize those actions and symbols because we know the traditions. In Jesus' day, they knew that tradition. And so when he says, this guy shows up at the wedding and he's not wearing the right clothes, everybody understood that part. But the indignation of tie him hand and foot, throw him outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, that's harsh. But that's the, that's the gut-wrenching part of the parable. Parables are, are not really sweet kids' stories. They're supposed to be gut-wrenching. They really are supposed to grab you where you make your decisions and, and tear you apart so that you make a decision. And then Jesus says, for many are invited, but few are chosen. Or at least that's how, let's see, that's, in, in your translation, what does verse 14 say? Can somebody read verse 14? Many are called, but few are chosen. This is the human condition. We are literally unfit to be seen before the holy God in and of our sin, let alone to enjoy the feast of the kingdom without accepting his invitation on his terms. If we do not accept his invitation on his terms, then we are unfit to attend the wedding banquet of the Lamb of God. Do you get that? Now, this punishment may seem severe for us, for somebody attending a wedding improperly dressed, but the point goes deeper than that. The man who had scorned the king's provision of proper wedding clothes insulted the host, and he showed personal complacency. Ah, at the last minute, I think I'll go to that wedding I was invited to. His best was not good enough for the king. But God, the king, looks upon it. The, the king in the story of the parable has the man thrown out. God will do the same to anyone who relies on his own goodness to gain entry into the kingdom. Isaiah says all of our best righteous acts are just like filthy bloody rags. Isaiah 64, 6. Isaiah also said, I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed me with robe of righteousness as a bridegroom adorns his head like a priest and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. And so, you know, the prophets in included the, the imagery of how beautiful a wedding is with all the adornment and, and the clothing but our, our human condition is we, we can't put together the right garments to get into the wedding banquet of the Lamb of God. But we are invited. There is an invitation. Now, uh, listen to the Greek. Agar eisen kletoi, allegoi de eklektoi. Eklektoi. And this is where people latch onto it and say, well, there are the elect. And the elect are those that God wants at the wedding, 
and everybody else is not the elect, and therefore they're not chosen. And I think it's a misunderstanding of the wedding, which is what this guy did in, in the story. He, he misunderstood the relationship that he needed to have to say, I, I've, I've heard the invitation to have relationship with the king. I accept the invitation to have relationship with the king and attend the events that the king wants me to attend. I'll sign the invitation, and I will return it. I will do the response to civil play, and my size, <laughs> and who's coming with me. I'll do whatever the invitation. And when the invitation is then returned to the father of the groom, he makes a pile of the eclectoi, the people who accepted the invitation, the people who chose to attend. How does God know who the chosen are, the people who turned back an invitation, who signed it, who did an RSVP, who accepted the invitation. Those are the elect. Those are the chosen. It's not that God has before time said, okay, I'm going to create some of these people down here and, and I don't care what they do, they can't get saved because they're not chosen. That, that is, that's a strange philosophy that doesn't fit the Hebraic understanding of Scripture. God sends out invitations. And those who accept the invitation will be welcome. If any, <laughs> bless you. <laughs> so, reflecting, re re rejecting God's invitation constitutes a deliberate insult against his dignity and should not be surprised to be tied hand and foot, thrown outside into the darkness with weeping and gnashing of teeth in a very real and horrifying sense. God will severely punish those who, who turn away from his kindness. The arrogant may spurn God, but God invites the lowly to the banquet table. You're welcome to come in. Every person who accepts the invitation on God's terms is welcome in. And, and you get wedding garments. And there's the food. There's the table. Sit, eat, enjoy. So the Pharisees went out and they laid plans to trap him in his words because they understood this one. They understood that he was pointing at them as unworthy to, to God's invitation. Good people who presume their eternal destination without relationship with Jesus are ignoring the truth. Religious people who insult God's grace by presuming upon their religion without truly honoring Christ will be banished into outer darkness. Ouch! The call is an invitation to repentance. And the chosen are proven so by the fact that we accepted the invitation. We have responded to the covenant. And it's, it's not hard to respond to the covenant. Believe and receive. Believe that Jesus is Lord and receive him in your heart, in your life, in your walk, in your devotion as savior, as master, as king. It's not all that complicated. I know we can make it complicated, but, but the, there are some conditions. Okay? I know a lot of people talk about the unconditional love. Well, salvation has a couple of conditions. Believe. Receive. Uh, confess Him as Lord. Okay? These, these, are, these are not unreasonable conditions, but there are conditions. There are actions we're supposed to take and keep. We are to maintain that relationship that we have with the Lord. That's a condition. 
if anyone come after me, well, deny yourself, take up the cross daily and follow. Well, that's a, that is a condition. It's not, a, it's not an unusual condition. It's not an impossible condition. It's a relational condition. Uh, any long-term relationship has daily maintenance. And if you think that's not true, well, get married, okay? And discover very quickly, <laughs> ah, this requires maintenance? I thought we got married. Well, yeah. Well, there was a wedding. Well, yeah. That was the beginning. It's a life of daily. And in Christ, it's a life of daily. It's the long obedience in the same direction. So, the, the, this wedding banquet has that point of an invitation goes out. Not everybody accepts the invitation. Those who accept the invitation have chosen God, and God has chosen you because he chose you by the invitation going to you. You have sealed that relationship by accepting that invitation. And my name, my size, <laughs> uh, how many are coming with me, and turning it back in. So it goes into the pile. In the book of Revelation, it talks about the Lamb's book of life. And our, your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. How, how does God know you're chosen? Well, your name is written there because you, you returned the invitation. And so I, I, hear, I hear theologians and people argue about the elect of God and predestination versus sovereignty of God. And people have made it more complicated than it ought to be. And just, it, it becomes a philosophical debate instead of a parable. Look at the parable. The Pharisees, I mean, they, 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 they accepted this as a slam against them, as an insult against them, and it was. Because Jesus was indicating that they were not receptive to the king and to the, to the wedding banquet. The, the point is, do not scorn the king's son. Do not, do not dishonor the king's son. Now, you and I know Jesus, king's son, right? So were the Pharisees understanding that Jesus was claiming to be the son of the king? In a sense, yeah. And that, that's pretty bold to be, to be putting out a parable like that. If that's what he means... I, of course they're going to be upset. And his disciples should be going through the mental process of, wow, this whole king thing. It, it took a while for them to, to wrap their head around it. God has provided the feast of the kingdom. It's the wedding feast for his son. The invitation goes out far and wide to every language and nation and tribe. If a person rejects it, they miss the party. If they think they can rely on getting in on their own fitness, their own achievements, their own prestige, their own position, they'll wind up getting thrown out. Many are invited, but not everybody accepts the invitation. Our response to the invitation is the demonstration of our chosenness. And Jesus is initially speaking about the Jewish religious leadership. So he chastises them for their lack of integrity. And the main charge is displayed in the parable of the two sons earlier, which points out their inaction in the vineyard of Israel. And the parable of the tenants points out their disloyalty to the, to the landlord. So there's a whole series of parables there that come down hard on the religious leaders. Okay? So, that's how I look at the, the, the wedding feast and what it means to be elected by God, <laughs> chosen by God. It's that, uh, please come. P 
please see Jesus as Lord? Please recognize him as the promised Messiah? Will you accept the invitation to, to bend your knee and confess with your tongue that Jesus Christ is Lord and let him be that in your life? Well, that, that puts you in the chosen category. That puts you in the category of the elect of God. It puts you in the category of you get to attend the wedding banquet when it occurs. Okay, any questions on that? What time is it? 4.35? Okay, yes. Hmm? I have a list. I, um, I'd like to choose which ones to do next. Let's see. Um, let's take a look, a look at Matthew 20. Matthew 20. Let's see. Somebody read the first five verses of Matthew 20, Matthew 20, 1 through 5. Somebody want to read six through um, eight? And then 13 through 16. Got that? Thoughts on this? Just uh, how, how does this parable strike you? What's going on?
workers who work longer got paid just as much as the workers who didn't work a little bit? And at first that kind of seems really unfair. Who does it seem unfair to? Yeah, so th there's the rub, okay? <clears throat> okay, can, can, you, can you look at the context? Uh, can you see the situation in the ministry of Jesus that brings forth this story? Uh, what, what is he teaching? Uh, what's, what's the dialogue? What has just been said by him or somebody else just before the parable? Yeah. Uh, let's see, uh, wh where do you see the children there? Uh, which verse? 13. Oh, yeah, 19, sorry. 1913, okay. The children there? Yeah. Okay. And then what comes next? Okay, so there's a question. And Jesus answers the question. And then the guy asks a follow-up question. Uh, all these I've kept, but what do I lack? And Jesus responds to that. Verse 22, the young man goes away really sad because he had great wealth. And then Jesus talks to the disciples after the, the young man left. The disciples heard what Jesus said, and they have a question. So we've got a series of questions that Jesus answers. Uh, when uh, Jesus said, again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven, verse 24. Disciples heard this. They were greatly astonished. They were freaked out. Who can be saved? So Jesus looked at them and said, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Then Peter answered, we've left everything to follow you. Okay, and Jesus should really be impressed by that, right? We left everything to follow you, and he asked a question. What then will there be for us? So we got, we got questions from the young man, from the disciple, from Peter specifically. In the context of the children and the rich young man. So that's the context leading up to the, the, um, the workers in the vineyard. Okay? His audience right now are the disciples and then anybody else who's hanging around, okay? We know in verse 13, children are brought to him. A rich young man comes up to him. The disciples are around him. So disciples and children and anybody else associated, I assume the parents and guardians of the children. So those, those are the ones available to hear what he says. And he concludes with, I tell you the truth, at the renewal of all things, in verse 28. When the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Okay, wow, we, we, we just took off here. The thing about the rich man getting into the eye of the, eye of the needle, you know, the camel and the eye of the needle thing, he is just, he's just taken us to somewhere cosmic. When the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, 
you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Okay, so it sounds to me like he's talking to the disciples. And they're all, they should be all sitting there going, cha-ching, yeah, okay, finally arriving. And everyone who's left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will in, in, inherit. Okay. And if I were sitting there, I'd be listening for him. He just talked about receiving a hundred times and will inherit. I'm expecting land, cattle, flocks of sheep. That, that's, that's where you had assets and wealth. Inherit eternal life. Can't take that to the bank, but in the long term, eternal life, sweet. But many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. Then he says, the kingdom of heaven is like, okay, we have our parables. So, so th there's the context. So he's, he's replying to, to, the, to the context of uh, the children brought to him and the rich young ruler, and we've left all things to follow you. And then what we just read in here, the kingdom is like the landowner. Went out and hired people. Now, uh, the, uh, in ancient Hebrew culture, uh, everybody had a sundial. Sundials is how they kept time. That, 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 a sundial would be used and would have been positioned so that it was effective for the whole year with the, the dashes on it, and there'd be 12 marks so that they could see through the day. Now, in, you know, Israel is, is not that far from the equator. It's north of the equator. But the, the, the movement would be faster in the winter months and slower in the summer months. But they still would measure according to the notches on the sundial. And so they would measure you know, the, the first hour, and they would start the day at sunrise, which was approximately 6 o'clock. But for them, it wasn't about... What time is it? It's what hour is it? And so the, they, would, they would, when they're working, either in town or in the field, in the vineyard, somebody would keep an eye on the sundial. And so th that's how they could tell what time it is. It, it is the 11th hour. Well, that's the 11th notch on the sundial. So th that, that's how they could tell. So everybody would agree that, yeah, if I'm working 12 notches in the summertime, I'm actually out in the field longer than 12 notches in the wintertime. Not by a whole lot, but still. Everybody accepted it, that's the way it was. So that, and if you got hired to work 12 hours in a day and get paid, then hopefully you would consider that, I, it, that's a decent job, I'm, I'm willing to do it. So, the temporary day laborers, day laborers, uh, we have them today. Uh, uh, Lowe's on Broad Street, um, there's always 30 or 40, mostly men, but also some women, and they've got their, their toolbox or their carpentry belt or whatever they use, and they're day laborers. And they wait for contractors to drive up, and he says, I need three carpenters, and three guys jump in the truck. And so that, that's, that, that happens today. It happened back then. A denarius was a fair daily wage. So they're standing in the marketplace to show I'm unemployed, but I'm willing to work. So the third hour of the day, approximately 9 a.m., so if you start at 6, roughly, the third marker of the day is 9 a.m. Um, and the, the, the owner says, I'll pay you whatever is right, whatever is righteous. 
The sixth hour is noon. The ninth hour is about 3 p.m. The eleventh hour is about 5 p.m. So you know by, ele- by the eleventh hour, as a day laborer, we're almost finished for the day. So quitting time would be around 6 p.m., just before sunset, with enough time to get back home or back to town before it got dark. And the master says, why have you been, why have you been standing here all day long doing nothing? And so his comment is, you're not very industrious, uh, not much initiative. Um, the, the coins back then, uh, they had coins that were uh, a half a denarius or a quarter of a denarius. There was actually one that was one-twelfth of a denarius, um, the, the mina, the, um, could have been used to pay the hourly workers. But Jesus has said the kingdom of heaven is like God exercising his dominion power can be compared to. And the first shall be last, and the last shall be first. So, when the people were upset, the, the, the owner said, friend, I'm not being unfair to you. Didn't you, you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. So those who were promised a day's wage got paid a day's wage. Take your pay and go. I want to give the man who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Well, God exercises his dominion power as he wants to. The grace of God is extended by his covenant, and it is sufficient and righteous. There's no such thing as one-twelfth grace. It's grace. No one gets one hour's worth of grace. Instead, we get eternity with him. My grandmother, my father's mother, lived to be 89 years old. She told me that she accepted Jesus when she was four. And so she lived 89 years. And the first four, she was a child. And so she was following Jesus for, what's that, 85 years. And she was a godly woman devoted to the Lord, committed, a woman of prayer. She was a Bible teacher at her church and a model for me, just a a great reflection of the grace of God. When she was young, she met a young farmer, and he courted her, and he presented himself to her as as a church-going man, and uh, they got married, started a family. Um, He developed an alcohol problem, and he wasn't Christ-centered. I loved my granddaddy. Uh, He was a sweet man to me, but he wasn't godly or Christ-centered. But he was married to my grandmother, and once she was married to him and she discovered he really wasn't a spiritual man the way he had pretended, uh, she and he raised um, eight children together. My father was one of them. And she was a godly, faithful woman, and she always prayed for her husband, Willie, my granddaddy. And they were married for 55 years. One night they were in bed and he was thirsty. He got up and he went to the kitchen to get some water. And while he was in the kitchen, the Holy Spirit convicted him of his sin. And he knelt down on the kitchen floor all by himself in the middle of the night and prayed that Jesus would save him. And Jesus did. He got up off the floor, walked into the dining room, and the Holy Spirit reminded him of some other things in his life that he needed to repent of. So he set the water down on the on the dining room table, got on his knees, prayed by himself in the middle of the night in the dining room, picked up that glass of water, 
made it to the living room, convicted of some more stuff, got down on his knees at the coffee table in the living room, prayed. He got back to the bedroom. He woke up his wife. He explained to her that he'd just gotten saved, told her about the kitchen experience, the dining room experience, the living room experience, and that he wanted to ask her to forgive him. And they prayed together. He had set his glass down on the nightstand next to the bed. And he prayed with my grandmother, and he died. Right there. Right then. His life was over. Now, when I get to see him in the resurrection, I will have no problem saying, Granddaddy, you were saved for what, 45 minutes? And your wife was walking with Jesus for 85 years, just suffering for Jesus because of you and your alcoholism. No, I'm not going to say that. I'm going to look in his face and know that the grace of God is as good for him as it is for my grandmother, as it is for you, as it is for me. So when, when, I, that, when I read this parable, those are the faces, those are the experiences that come to my mind. It's the grace of God. It, it is uh, the one who owns, the one who created us and can claim ownership of us, can give grace. It's, it's, it's righteous to do that from his perspective. And nobody should say, man, I've, I've been slaving over here all this time. Remember the story of the, of the prodigal son and the other brother? Hey, Dad, I've, I've been working. I mean, I've been sweating over here, and, and you gave half of your stuff to my brother, and he comes back, and he's done squat, and, and you haven't thrown me a party. There's, there's part of the dilemma, is begrudging someone else who's been shown mercy and grace. And th there's the challenge there. Will I begrudge someone else who experiences God's grace and God's favor and God's blessing, and will I get upset at God for showing kindness to somebody that I don't think deserves it. And forget, I don't deserve it. I can't earn it. So, the first shall be last and the last shall be first. God considers uh, you want to live, die. You want to go up, serve, be down. Uh, there are paradoxes that God's happy with and we kind of get bent out of shape over paradox. The first become last. Now, wait a minute. What, what about me? What, what am I, a chunk of cheese? And we have, to, we, have to, we have to deal with it. And that's what Jesus is challenging. The rate for the job. Are you envious because God is generous to other people? Uh, Jews had a bargain with God. Obey the commands of Moses and you will inherit eternal life. Yet they would tend to be envious over God's grace being shown to Gentiles who have no claim on the, the, the covenant. They have not obeyed the commands for years and years. And the point is, when people make a bargain with God, he will honor his promise and give them no cause for complaint. But there's a limit to what his grace will do for those who have no claim at all on him, but trust entirely to his goodness. God is the divine equalizer, so eternity is the same for all. 
the first be last, the last be first. That doesn't mean switch places. It means you change the line. The line had been like that, and there's the people up front, the people in the back. All of a sudden, it's like that, and everybody's standing equal to show up at the banquet table. Do you get that? It's just, it, it, it alters our perspective. It, it doesn't mean I lose my place in line. It means everybody gets the same place in line. We're all lined up shoulder to shoulder. Oh, there's the table. Here's the seat. Sit. So, okay. Does that help clarify that one? I mean, these, these parables are, are, are rich in uh, grabbing us in our gut and helping us to come to grips. We really are envious. It's so in, easy for us as human beings to be envious of people who seem to have life easy, everything goes well, it all works out, and we, we have to wrestle with it, get over it, and in the spiritual sense, recognize I can also be envious of people spiritually. How, how, come, how come they get to direct that thing? How, how come they're placed in charge of that outreach? How and, and even in mission and ministry, we, we can be envious of God's blessing poured out on somebody else. How come they have, they have such an easy time raising their support, and I have to struggle so much? Okay, we, we will struggle with those kinds of, of um, self-reflection and not be envious. But trust in God's blessing and grace on me. Don't worry about anybody else, okay? So, uh, flip back a couple of pages to Matthew 18. Matthew 18, 21. Okay, Matthew 18 has a um, description of those who are great in the kingdom, children, parable of the lost sheep, then if a brother sins against you, verse 15, verse 21, after the teaching from Jesus about the brother who sins against you, what to do, Peter, in verse 21, came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Up to seven times. Jesus answered, I'll tell you, not seven, but 77. Or 70 times seven. It's unclear as to, to which phrase he used. It's either 77 or 490. <laughs> okay. It's, it's a huge number, okay? Um, and so Jesus gives a parable. Uh, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. He began the settlement. A man who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, and that's millions of dollars, okay? That's a huge sum of money. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children, all he had, be sold and to repay the debt. The servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged. I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him. Cancel the debt and let him go. Totally cancel it. Didn't come up with a payment plan, but just wiped it away. When the servant went out, he found one of his own fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. Small, chump change. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. And his servant, fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me. I will pay you back. But he refused. Instead, he went off, had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. Okay, how, how can you pay a debt from prison? It's just that logic doesn't flow there unless you're hoping a rich uncle dies and you inherit something. And how often does that happen? So, 
Then the master called the servant in and he said, you wicked servant, I canceled all the debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master turned him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother from your heart. So verse 35 is a, I think is a clear statement of interpretation. Jesus, in one sense, Jesus could have eliminated the parable and just said verse 35. But verse 35 would not have the punch that it does without the parable. We remember that parable. Okay, this guy is forgiven of millions of dollars, and then he chases down a dude who only owes him a couple hundred dollars, not a big deal, and refuses to give a payment plan to this guy and throws him into jail even after he has just, it's just, I mean, the, 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 the foolishness, the, the stubbornness of that kind of action. Now, some of the parable stories reflect things that might have actually happened or not. And we, sometimes it's unclear, but some of the parables really are believable in its details. Okay, and to me, this is one of those, in its details, it's believable. It might be completely fictional, but it's believable. Some of the parables, not so much. They're, they're, they're so awkward that they don't seem to reflect an actual event, but they are a great story. This is one of those, it, it really has that, 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 that feel of realism as an actual possibility. The audience here, his disciples, and Peter specifically, it, uh, when Peter talked to him, I don't know if, if they were doing a one-on-one -on -one when nobody else could hear, or if, if, if uh, others were there and they could hear what was happening. So Peter's asking how many times. And that was a question that rabbis did debate. When it came to forgiveness, that, that actually was a rabbinic debate. How many times is, is appropriate? And their attitude was uh, seven is sort of perfect and seven's a nice symbol of perfection. So if you forgive a friend seven times, you're good. And so that was actually, you know, Peter didn't make that up. He's actually referring to uh, a, a body of debate that the rabbis had been arguing for like 100 years or so. And so how many times shall I forgive? And Jesus gives a much larger number. And the phrase really could be um, 70 times 7 or 77 times 7 or 70 but 70 times 7 is 490. So it, 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 the, the expression is just so broad, it's big. With the idea that... Right. A, a number so large that you're going to lose track unless you're really retentive and obsessive. And you're like, okay, uh, 387, okay, I got that. Okay, some people, they are like that, but most of us, we would lose track. And that's the idea. Forgive so many times that you, for, that you lose track. And if you're not married yet, when you do, remember that. Forgive and lose track of how many times you've done it. Just trust me in this. You'll thank me later, okay? And, right, okay. Okay, the, some of the rabbis said four times. Some rabbis said seven. Jesus just goes way, way beyond the norm. The kingdom is not likened to the king, but the kingdom inaugurated by Jesus, where, where things will take place, as the parable is, is describing. The, uh, the talent, um, 
the, it, it actually is the Greek word talanta, which at, at one point was seen as, um, as gold. Others saw the talent as silver. Um, there's a description in uh, a Greek document, the Attic the Ad- Salon, that identified it at that time w- would have been $1,080, but in, with inflation, that would be $10,800,000. So if it's a gold talent, according to the, that Greek document, it's $10,800,000. If it was silver talent, it would be $16,250,000. So anyway, a huge sum of money, millions of dollars, whereas a few hundred denarii would be um, dollars, maybe less than $100. Uh, Placing the woman and the children on the auction block would not raise that much money. It would be less than one talent. So selling the the family into debt would not pay it off. So Jesus is saying, this is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother from your heart. This is how you will be treated unless you forgive your brother from your heart. That's verse 35. So that's the interpretation of it. Great parable. It's supposed to sock you in your gut and go, wow, man, I do not want to go down that path. I don't want to do that. Well, that's the idea. You make a decision. I don't want to ever want to behave that way. When I have the chance to be merciful to somebody, may, may I show them more mercy than I was shown. May I not bask in my own mercy and turn around and treat somebody else unmercifully. That, 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 that certainly is the, um, is the personal response we can make, recognizing that I want my Heavenly Father to treat me with mercy, and you mean He expects me to show mercy to others? Yes. Okay, I got it. From my heart, that's what I'm going to do. Therefore, the main point, be forgiving, forgive others, be merciful, be quick to forgive. Be in a hurry to forgive. Rush to forgive. Forgive without keeping score. Oh boy, when you get married, that becomes important. We've, so, trust me. I, we've been married 45 years. Next week is our 45th anniversary. Forgive without keeping score. <laughs> okay. Avoid judgment with punishment by handing out forgiveness in the same way that the Father hands out forgiveness. That's just, that's the truth, okay? Any questions, thoughts? Okay. Any favorite parables you want to look at and just dive into and, and, and you, you find what the interpretation is? Okay, yeah, sure, sure, sure. Um, let's see, which... Which verse? Which passage? Um, well, it's in a couple, but Matthew 21. Matthew 21. Or, or is it the one in 2432? That, that, that one?
Wait, which one? He cursed the fig tree in 21. Oh, okay. Of which chapter? 21. Oh, I was in the wrong chapter. Okay. 21.19. There we go. Matthew 21.19. That's what I needed. Because uh, fig tree shows up several times. 21.19. Let's take it from the beginning of chapter 21. Okay, so we set the context. Uh, this is uh, the beginning of Passion Week, beginning of the last week. And they approached J Jerusalem, came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives. Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead. You will find a donkey tied there with her colt with her. Untie, bring them to me. If anyone says anything to them, to you, tell them the Lord needs them. He will send them right back. This took place to fulfill what was spoken to the prophet. And then here is where Matthew, the writer, quotes, and you see the reference there as a quotation from Zechariah chapter 9. Say to the daughter of Zion, see your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now there's an old rabbinic proverb that if Israel is righteous, the king will come back on a horse. If Israel is unrighteous, he'll come back on a donkey. Now that's a rabbinic proverb that predates Jesus. It's not scripture, but somebody had it right. <laughs> Just anticipating. And this is uh, from Zechariah. It's anticipating the king coming and to ride on a donkey would be unlike a king. It, it's, a, it's a humble position, whereas kings, when they came into the city, would be riding a horse, a really nice horse, the best. And so this king, from the prophecy of Zechariah, is choosing humility in their approach. And so, and, and, and so when, this, when Jesus does it, Matthew is saying this, this is what Zechariah had anticipated. So the disciples went and did as Jesus instructed them. They found the donkey, found the colt, placed their cloaks on them. Jesus sat. Very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road. Now, th this is the crowd of Jews coming from Galilee for the Passover. And all week long, there would have been Jews coming for that pilgrimage. Uh, Passover was treated as one of the uh, pilgrimage festivals. And... For the Jews who lived, like in Bethlehem, which was five miles away, they probably went to the temple on a weekly basis. People who lived in Galilee probably came to the temple eh, four or five times a year. Just the distance. You're, you're talking uh, 80 miles north, um, 100 miles north, uh, 50 miles south, down in Judea. The farther away people live, the fewer times each year they would come. The, Pilgrimage festivals were the biggies, um, one in the spring, two in the fall. And so the, the, the Passover in the springtime 
w w that was an opportunity to take a week off from work or more, 10 days, maybe two weeks, depending on how far you live. People who lived over in Babylon or North Africa might only come once a year. They might just make a family trip or their village might come together. It was common that a, a synagogue community would say, okay, we're all going together this year, and they would travel together. And so there, there would be several dozen families from the same synagogue, which is kind of cool. You know, they, they all know each other, they know each other's kids, all the kids can be running, and, 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 and then on their way, uh, they would camp together, so they had tents and stuff. So pilgrimage festivals, like the Passover, like Pesach, was a significant event in which the population of the city of Jerusalem would explode because for a couple of weeks. Um, instead of having uh, 20,000 people, there could be 200,000 people. And so it could be a massive influx, which was great for the economy. You know, all the hotels and restaurants are full, you know, that, that sort of thing. Um, what would happen is as people approached the city, there would be uh, worship leaders, cantors, who would, would have developed a routine of what songs from the Psalms they would sing at certain points. The Psalms of Ascent, there's a selection of Psalms from uh, 112, 118, 119, 120 that are called the Psalms of Ascent, the Psalms of going up the hill. And the Psalms of Ascent are there so that as you are coming on pilgrimage and you're walking through the streets and you're going uphill because Jerusalem is on the hilltop, so everybody, no matter where you're coming from, north, south, east, west, you gotta go uphill to get there. The songs of ascent are the ones that you would sing while ascending, and if the cantor had paced it just right, they would get, uh, as soon as they saw uh, the, the gold leaf shining on the top of the Holy of Holies building, uh, at one point, they had taken gold leaf with hammers and beaten it there so that when the sun would shine on it, it wasn't solid gold, it was just thin leafing. But when they saw the gold leaf, they would try to be just ending Psalm 117 and beginning Psalm 118, which includes Hoshana, O Lord, save us. And, and so it, what comes out as Hosanna is a quotation from part of that song. And so for them saying it, all of these people would have been singing Psalm 118, 116, 117, 118, which Psalm 118 is give thanks to the Lord, he is good, and everybody would say his love endures forever. And then the cantor would say, let Israel say, and the whole crowd would say his love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say his love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say his love endures forever. And everybody would be singing this together. Now. Uh, if you had 200 people from your synagogue, including your family and your friends and your neighbors all together, that, two, that group of 200 would be singing Psalm 118. There may be another group of people that you don't know that came from another village, and there's 100 of them, and they're uh, 100 yards ahead of you. Well, they're ahead of you in the singing, too. So they're pacing it so that as they come down the Kidron Valley, and they're going to cut through the cemetery. There's a cemetery on, on the hill as you come in that um, eastern gate so that you'd be pacing yourself. Uh, the Lord is with me. He is my helper. I will look in triumph on my enemies. It's better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man, better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. At that point, they could see the palace of the king. All the nations surrounded me, but in the name of the Lord, I cut them off. 
They surrounded me on every side, but in the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They swarmed around me like bees, but they died out as quickly as burning thorns. I was pushed back, about to fall, but the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Shouts of joy and victory resound in the tents of the righteous. The Lord's right hand has done mighty things. The Lord's right hand is lifted high. The Lord's right hand has done mighty things. I will not die, but live. And, and they would try to pace it so they were in the middle of the cemetery, which is on that eastern hill, just below the wall, just below the gate. As they said, I will not die, but I will live. The Lord has chastened me severely. Open for me the gates of righteousness. So by that time, they can see the gate. The gate should be open. I will enter and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. So they're trying to pace themselves with Psalm 118 to be at particular places as they're entering into the city. I will give you thanks, for you answered me. You have become my salvation. The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. At that point, they hope to be passing through the gate. And there's the capstone above the gate. The Lord has done this. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad. And it, at that point, they're entering into the city itself. They still have to go up a street and an alley before they get into the temple. But they've passed through the gate, and they shout, O Lord, save us. O Lord, grant us success, which in Hebrew is Hoshana, O Lord, save us, which comes out now as Hosanna. And so the disciples went and did as Jesus instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt, placed their cloaks on them. Jesus sat on them. Verse 8, a very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. This was not a normal part of the pilgrimage. They're adding some features because they realize something different is happening here. And Jesus, every time he would have come on a pilgrimage festival at Passover, would have done, they would have sung Psalm 118. But the crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. That's new. Hosanna, everybody was going to be shouting Hosanna. The people up in the, in the crowd above, uh, above them and ahead of them, they would have heard it a minute before. People behind them haven't caught up yet. They're, they're singing the same thing, but they're eight verses behind us, okay? The people around Jesus make a connection that Jesus is the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord from Psalm 118. And then they repeat, Hosanna in the highest. So when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, who in the world is this? Because they've added to the normal song. Well, well, that's weird. Everybody would know. That's, nobody's done that before. What's going on? You guys are improvising. They were, not, they were not accustomed to improvising the songs. They were just accustomed. Memorize it, sing it. Memorize it, sing it. And these people have improvised. They've added a feature to it. That's become normal for us, right? In worship, we're accustomed to improvising. Back then, not so much. But they're doing it because they realize there's a significant difference here. Jesus is adding a feature to it. So they enter Jerusalem, and the crowds are answering, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. So he goes to the temple, and he goes to where they're buying and selling things. Now, the buying and selling of things is not a bad thing. A lot of people had traveled a long distance, and they want to bring a perfect offering. Now, at home, let's say they lived... Say they lived in Alexandria, North Africa, and they wanted to bring a lamb, but the journey, it's going to be tough on dragging a sheep around. 
it, it might get damaged, it might get bruised, and you don't want to bring a bruised animal to the sacrifice. So instead, they took their sheep at home in North Africa, sold it at the market, took the money, put the money in the pocket. When they get to Jerusalem, there will be shops, there will be shepherds selling undamaged animals so they can buy one there. And for years, there were markets on the western side of the wall, the retaining wall. There was a whole alley of markets. It was, it was a, a, a perfect Middle Eastern bazaar in which you could buy uh, sheep, lamb, goats, uh, turtle doves, ox, uh, whatever, yeah, oil, salt, you know, the different things that you would need for the offering and for the sacrifice. For people who came a long distance, they wouldn't drag that stuff with them. They would bring money and buy it because there were markets there. Three years before this story right here, the Sadducees, who controlled the temple, had given themselves a business license to begin operating one of those markets inside the temple itself. Never been done before. The Pharisees hated it. The Pharisees opposed it. But the Sadducees controlled the temple. The Sadducees attended the temple. The, the, the Pharisees would attend the temple, but the Sadducees were appointed by the Roman government and were given responsibility to rule the temple and ran the police force, the temple guard. And the high priest was always appointed by the Roman government from the Sadducee party. So the Sadducees gave themselves a business license to open a market in the temple building. And, and um, uh, a, a key here is uh, when people brought their annual coin, um, the, their, their offering for the Passover, they would bring a coin that had no graven image on it. The only place to get that was from uh, the port city of Tyre. All of the Roman money had uh, carvings of whoever the emperor was or the local general. They had carved images on it of people. And the Jews did not want to bring those coins into the temple. And so the money changers in the market outside the wall would change money. It ju just like you go through airports now and you exchange currency from one, one country to another, uh, the markets outside of the city wall would change money. Nothing wrong with changing money because if you carried Roman coins in your pocket, you'd want to empty your pockets and, and get uh, the nondescript coins because the Romans forbade the Jews from having their own coins. They weren't allowed to mint their own money at that time. And the only place in the world they could find under Roman control that made money that had fruits and vegetables on it was the city of Tyre. And so money changers would send their boys up the coast, go to Tyre, take all the Roman money and exchange it for the, the fruits and vegetable coins, bring it back to town and exchange it for a fee. It costs money to change money, so for a fee. Well, the Sadducees said, well, we, we can do that just as well in the temple, which means anybody who went into that area to change money was bringing Roman coins in their pocket into the temple area to go to the market in the temple area. Jesus shows up and he thinks this is a bad idea to have this market in this place in the area designated for Gentile prayer. Okay, remember in the temple there were zones and you had to stay in your zone. The Hebrew men and boys had a zone. They could go the closest to the altar. In, in the process, the Jewish women had to stay out of that zone because they had the area of the women and children. 
Behind that zone was the zone for the Gentiles who were curious about God, who had not converted to Judaism yet, but they were interested. Well, they were restricted, and there was a wall, a, a knee wall. There were openings so that the Jewish women, Jewish men could pass through, but there was a marked area for the court of the Gentiles, Gentiles who wanted to seriously consider Yahweh but had not converted yet. That is where the Sadducees set up their market, in the court of the Gentiles prayer area. So, Jesus goes where they're buying and selling the animals, the sacrificial animals, and there's nothing wrong with selling sacrificial animals downtown, outside the temple. There's nothing wrong with exchanging money downtown, outside the temple. Not a problem with that. Jesus had a problem because of where it was. It is written to them, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you're making it a den of robbers. So, what he's upset about is, is what they're doing, where they're doing it. They should not be doing it because it's pushing Gentiles out of the way. Because it was as far as the Gentiles could get and see way, way over there, the altar of sacrifice. And the worship team, they can barely hear the worship team back here, okay? At, the, at least the Jewish women could get closer to the worship team, and the Jewish men and boys could get even closer. So it, it's, it's pushing them farther away from the presence of God. The blind and lame came to him at the temple. He healed them. Chief priests, teachers of the law, saw the wonderful things. And the children continuing to shout in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David. Okay, Saying Hosanna is scriptural. That comes right out of Psalm 118. Save us, O Lord. But to identify him as son of David, that was the radical part. And they're identifying him as that. Do you hear what these children are saying, he asked. And Jesus replied, yes. Have you never read? Oh, is it okay? Yeah, thank you. Have you never read from the lips of children and infants you have ordained praise? And he left them and went out to the city in Bethany where he spent the night. So there's the, there, there's the flow of the context. I thought it was worthy just to give you the flow. Early the next morning, he's on his way back to the city. So it, 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 once he cleansed the temple, they left. They went to Bethany, which is on the, on the east side of the, of the Kidron Valley. So they went out of the city, out of that east gate, down the Kidron Valley, up the hill, uh, past the Garden of Gethsemane. And up at the top, there was the village of Bethany, which overlooks the, the Jordan Valley. So it's, it's out of town. It's quieter. It's really pretty at night. It's just, it's just a really beautiful place. He's early in the morning on his way back to the city. He's hungry, and he sees a fig tree by the road. He went up to it, but he found nothing on it except leaves. Then he said to it, May you never bear fruit again, and immediately the tree, the, the tree withered. Now when the di disciples saw this, they were amazed. How did the fig tree wither so quickly, they asked. And Jesus replied, I tell you the truth. If you have faith and do not doubt, not only can you do what was done to the fig tree, but you can also say to this mountain, Throw yourself into the sea, and it will be done. If you believe, then you will receive whatever you ask for in prayer. Wow. Okay. You got the cursing of a fig tree because it's got no figs. Because he, it just has leaves on it. And then he's talking about throwing a mountain into the sea, and you'll be able to curse fig trees also. T t t tell me what questions you have about that event. I just don't understand why he cursed the tree. Like, could it have just been it wasn't 
Now, um, let's see, when does he get back to the fig tree? It's a while later. I was sitting in a seminary class. Professor went through this, and um, he, he was, as a theologian, he was not one who trusted in the miracles of the Bible. And he looked at it and said, this is just an arbitrary act of judgment that just shows how arbitrary Jesus was in casting others aside. I wasn't happy with that. So I went to the library to look up fig trees, in the Middle East, try to understand, was there something here? Well, in, um, in the Middle East, uh, they, they have a lot of fig trees. Um, Modern-day Turkey, Greece, Israel, Lebanon, um, the Greek islands, that whole Mediterranean area, figs are a major deal. Um, a when figs are grown, or when olives are grown, or when grapes are grown, those who tend them know what to look for. With, um, with grapes, uh, there's a shape of the leaf and the size of the flower that tells you if you're going to get a grape on that particular limb. Same thing with olives, you know, the, the shape of the leaf and, and where the flower comes out tells you what's going to happen. With a fig, if there is um, no small, nubby, nut-like thing, um, it, it sort of looks like a bud, but it doesn't blossom. If it doesn't come out with that bud, then a fig will not grow. But if there is that bud on it, they actually come along and they snip the bud so that the fig can grow. If it has only leaves, and it doesn't have that little bud, that little nubby, small nut shape on it, it's not going to bear anything at all. So if there's a branch with leaves and no nubs, then you snip that branch so that the other ones are, are, are getting all the life. Um, with vineyards like that, you cut away the sucker branches so that all of the nutrients are going to the branches that show potential. If it only has leaves and it doesn't have the, the, they call it a tosh. If it doesn't have the tosh, that, that pre-nubby thing, that, you, that you're supposed to snip off just the nubby thing, and at that point on the branch, that's where the fig comes out. If you don't snip it off, it very likely won't have any figs on it. And people who have uh, orchards, whether it's grapes or olives or figs, they all know that. They, they know specifically when to look, and what to look for. And they go around with little pruners. There's, there's a special pruner with a little, a little, it's a little crooked shape on it for the figs. Just perfect little tool. You just quickly snip, snip, snip. If there's only leaves on the whole thing and there's no of those little, little nubby things, a good fig farmer would actually come and uproot the whole thing. Why bother with it? So if it, doesn't, if it only had leaves and had none of the nubby things, and we're talking about April, 
if it doesn't have the little nubby tosh in April, then in late May, early June, it will not have a fig. And so that, that's when they would go around. When is this? April. And so Jesus, is, he's helping the farmer out. So it's not an arbitrary act of judgment, but it symbolizes God's looking for some indication that some fruit will come someday. And a good fig farmer knows he wants fruit in May, June, but he will know by April if there's potential. And he can see the potential with the little tosh, nubby, nut-like looking thing if there's going to be a fig in six to seven weeks. Jesus comes along and found nothing on it except leaves. And so all the people of the day, they're like, this is not arbitrary. He's actually doing a kindness to the fig farmer guy because, you know, he's doing, he's doing the labor. May you never bear fruit again. And immediately the whole tree withered. Now, there's the freaky part. Jesus spoke, a tree died. Well, a farmer would have come along and he would have gone through the labor and the struggle of uprooting. And if you've ever tried to pull up a little bush or something, it's not easy, okay? So he just withers the thing. How did the tree wither so quickly? Well, it was a miracle. So I tell you the truth. If you have faith and do not now doubt, not only you can do what done to this fig tree, but you can also say to the mountain. Later on, he's going to indicate that what was done with the fig tree was, a, was an example for Israel. That if they do not show the potential for fruit, they run the risk of being withered. Now, um, the thing about say to this mountain, I know some people talk about moving mountains and we just need to have the faith to move mountains. I, I think it's significant that Jesus said this mountain. What mountain was he standing on? Where, what mountain is Bethany on? Jerusalem is on Mount Zion. Then there's the Kidron Valley separating Jerusalem from Bethany. Bethany and, and the, the Garden of Gethsemane are near each other on the same hill. Do you remember the name of that hill? Mount of Olives. Gethsemane, wine, Olive Press, okay. Mount of Olives. And according to Zechariah, when Messiah comes back, the Mount of Olives will be split half in one direction, one in the other. He's standing on the Mount of Olives, and he's inviting people to pray for the Mount of Olives to be split. So, so some people apply this to whatever difficulty I'm facing in my life is like a mountain, and we can move mountains. Well, that, that's a cool sentiment. It makes a nice Hallmark card, but I don't think that's what he's saying. I, I think he, he's referring to, to Zechariah, uh, the mountain being cast into the sea. If you believe it, you will receive whatever you ask for in prayer. And, and the whatever, I think, is about Jesus coming back, about the return of the Son of Man. And so if you want to pray about something, you, you want to pray about mountains moving, pray for the return of the Son of Man. When the Son of Man puts his foot, foot on the Mount of Olives, it's going to split. That's the first point on earth that the Messiah touches when he comes back, the Mount of Olives. And Jesus is on that mountain, and he says, say to this mountain. So I, I don't think he's speaking metaphorically about the mountains in your life as struggles. I think he's literally talking about the mountain that we're standing on right now, which was Olivet, which is where Bethany and Gethsemane were. So the, the, he, he cursed a fig tree because he saw there was, there was not the potential of bearing fruit. 
which becomes an illustration of Israel and how there wasn't a lot of potential for bearing fruit. Or at least that was the risk. Okay? But thank you for asking. I hope that helps. Okay. Wait, uh, which one? Mark 11. Oh, yeah, uh, that's the follow-up in verse 20. In the morning as they went along in Mark eleven twenty, they saw the fig tree from the root. So on the next day, Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. Have faith in God. I tell you the truth, if anyone says to the mountain, um, when you stand praying, hold nothing in. So he, he instructs them to uh, show forgiveness. And I'm trying to remember where, where they come upon the fig tree the next time. When, when, when he does indicate um, it's a description of Israel. It's, it's before he's arrested, but it's not the next day. And I don't see it right now, so I'll, I'll look for that tonight, okay? Okay, so what else? Yeah, what, what passage is it? Luke 16. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. Now, okay, here is a parable that the parabolic story involves an old Jewish folktale. And Jesus using it is not necessarily endorsing the myth of the folktale, but it's like, I, I, would, I would compare it with us today when we're doing a lesson or a sermon or something, and we refer to a recent movie that we saw. And we make reference to media, and we're not endorsing the whole movie. I do that all the time. Um, I'll reference uh, one of the Marvel's Avenger movies. You know, I like them. I like some of the themes in them, some of the characters. I don't embrace the mythology at all. It's myth. I know that. And so this, this is not Lazarus, the brother of Mary and Martha. Okay? It's, it, it's, a, it's a fictional Lazarus. Um, dressed in purple, fine linen, lived luxury every day. And the myth has to do with um, Abraham's bosom, Abraham's side, as a place of comfort for those who, have, who haven't found out where they're headed. And that, that's, it's, a, it's a Jewish 
mythological folktale type perspective. And I don't think Jesus is endorsing it. It's just a useful illustration. Um, in hell, there he was in torment, or in, let's see, uh, this is uh, Hades. Uh, and Hades actually is borrowed from the Greek myth of the underworld. And Hades was one of the gods. And the place he ruled was named after him. And so Hades was the place where the guy, Hades, was cast down. But he was uh, one of the sons of Zeus. And so Zeus kicked him out. And it's a whole series of folktales about Zeus and Hades and their fight and um, the people they killed and brought back to, to life and that kind of stuff. So Jesus has no, no problem using images and terms from mythologies, from other countries, in fact, to make a point. Okay, so if, so if, if you know if I mention you know Captain America or Thor or something, I'm not embracing the whole fiction, but it's an image from popular media or culture or theater or poetry or whatever. And teachers of the ancient world, including the rabbis, felt some of them felt comfortable. Others didn't feel comfortable. And I know some modern ministers that they, they would chew me out for using modern, modern images, but I, sometimes I think it's appropriate. So here, uh, the, the term Hades, uh, he was in Hades, he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. He called him, Father Abraham, have pity on me, send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, because I'm in agony in this fire. Abraham said, son, remember that in your lifetime you receive your good things, while Lazarus received bad things. But now he's comforted here. You're in agony. Besides all this, between you, us and you's great chasm been fixed, so that those who want to come from here to there cannot. And so we're divided, and there's no way to cross that chasm, as far as we can tell. He answered, I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my father's house, who's still alive, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them, so that they may also come to this place, of, may not come to this place of torment. And Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. And he replied, no, Father Abraham, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. And he said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. So, uh, context is, uh, let's see. Jesus teaching the disciples, the cost of being a disciple, parable of the great banquet. So it, it, it's, it's in this long flow of multiple parables that really start back in 13. And just from 13 all the way through. And th this portion of Luke does not occur in Matthew or Mark. Uh, Luke's got a whole bunch of, of parabolic teachings from Jesus that are unique to, you, to Luke's account that simply aren't found in the others. Um, it's, it's the way God worked through Luke. And so you've got some here, there's, there's no parallel within the others. So it's a, it's a long set of parables going back, numerous chapters, 13, 12, even all the way back to 11 when Jesus taught on prayer and the question about Beelzebub. So it, it's in a series of parabolic teachings. Do you see either from Jesus or from Luke's writing, any comment 
that you would think is interpreting the parable. It's not so clear, is it? There's certainly nothing from Luke because we get nothing more from Luke until um, chapter 17, verse 11. That's when Jesus has finished up with unworthy servants who have only done our duty. And then Luke narrates on his way to Jerusalem, Jesus traveled along the border between Samaria and Galilee. And then we have the, the, uh, um, the ten who were healed from leprosy. So there's nothing of comment from Luke the writer. And there's no additional comment from Jesus about the parable. But in the parable, look at verse 31 very carefully. In the parable, you've got a dialogue between Lazarus and Abraham. Now, it's not, it's not a literal conversation. It's a story crafted to make a point. And Abraham, in this story, says, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. And I would say that is the interpretation. That, that is the comment that gives meaning to the passage. And the, the glaring truth is there were those in Jesus' day who were so adamant against him. Their opposition was so vile and so passionate from their perspective that they rejected the testimony of the resurrection. And they may have seen him risen from the dead alive, and yet they still were convinced that it was not true. And so it, 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 is, it is a classic prophetic expectation that some will reject him because they're so committed to their agenda that they reject truth, they reject revelation, they reject resurrection, even if they see it or people that they know testify to it. That is a reality. And so the request was, uh, please send somebody and maybe they'll listen to somebody. Uh, let him warn them so that they will not, so my brothers will not also come to this place. Well, they've got Moses and the prophets. That's enough. And he said, well, please send somebody from the dead. Well, that was God's plan to send somebody from the dead. That is Jesus. But the final statement is, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, and Jesus resurrected in fulfillment of the promises, of Moses and the prophets. And yet, still people are not convinced. Regrettably. And I've tried to argue some people into the kingdom. I'm not good at it. I'm not good at arguing people into the kingdom. I've been pretty good at the kitchen table, um, telling my story, a testimony of what God's done in my life, or in my children. In, in my family, uh, in my church, uh, telling telling this the, the testimony, stories that are that are uh, built upon scripture and apply scripture, and time and again, people at the kitchen table have said, I, "I want that. I want that in my life." And all of my philosophy, all of my Greek and Hebrew, meant nothing at that point. It was about sharing a story that persuaded them. Some people won't be persuaded, and, and that, that's the punchline of this parable. Uh, some will not be convinced, 
even if someone rises from the dead. But the fact is in verse 30, if someone from the dead does go to them, they will repent. That hope is a proper hope. And that's, what, that's, that's our story, that someone has come from the dead. Jesus conquered death and sin and hell, and it will lead people to repentance who can be convinced, but some people won't be convinced. It's a question of why. Okay. And let's see. I've got, uh, let's see. Well, there's, there's certainly more parables. What, what I want you to see is that any of you can tackle the parables and then look at the context to see what the flow is what's happening at the time of his ministry, dialogue, conversation, the last event, the last miracle, and see, does he provide a comment? And, and we just saw here, it, it wasn't so much Jesus offering a supplemental comment, it's that he's actually embedded the comment in the parable itself. And so I, I think that last statement there, um, is, as if it's a dialogue between de, uh, dead Lazarus and dead Abraham, with Abraham, uh, Jesus has put the words in his mouth as one vouching for the reality of somebody not being convinced. And so it is possible for uh, the, the human writer to offer the interpretation, or Jesus, or for Jesus to embed the interpretation in the parable itself. Okay. So interpret, interpret the parables and feel comfortable doing it on your own. You don't have to go too far. 